0: You know that we have completed our time of studying the book of Galatians, and so the question is where we will go next. And after getting a number of uh, suggestions from a number of you, I've settled on us returning to what we were doing before. There are two books that we've been studying in the past that we never completed. One is Matthew, and the other is the book of Ezra Nehemiah. And that's where we're going to go. We're going to go to Ezra Nehemiah. So I'd ask you to turn to Ezra, the first chapter. The question is, Uh, You might remember a few years ago, back in 2003, that we had five or six sermons from the book of Ezra. Then we got to a text. I was looking ahead and I saw that the next text was going to be the text that said, And so they stopped building. (laughs) And at that same time, uh, we stopped building. I saw it coming. I looked at the text and I thought, you know what, I'm done with Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's how you have the decisions made about what you're going to study in sermons. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't know why God did uh, what He has done with us. Um, as far as the goat farm was concerned, some of you are new and don't know that we owned a piece of property on the east side, and had it all set. Had hired the architect, broke the ground. Everything was set. We were preaching Nehemiah, which is about. You know, restoring the temple, restoring the walls. And then God shut us down. And, uh, well, now I have faith because I see something. There's actually a building there. (laughs) And so I think I'm on solid ground to return to Ezra Nehemiah. But I am kind of like the dog that's been kicked once too many times, you know. I'm wondering, well, maybe that... That building will explode. Who knows? You never know. So Ezra Nehemiah is where we're going to turn. And uh, then the question was how to handle um, the fact that we have already introduced the book. Should we just jump in where we left off? What should we do? And uh, through a whole combination of things, including a late night email last night, I've actually decided to go ahead and have an introductory sermon, even though it will be repetition for most of you, uh, so that we can get our orientation, see where we're at, remember what the cent- what, what's at the center of this book. So let's read together the first chapter of Ezra, uh, verses 1 to 11. Uh, this is the word of God, and it's always true, forever. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit... God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridates the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, what is going on with the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, first, it used to be one book. It didn't used to be two books. Uh, It wasn't until uh, the third or fourth century after Christ that it was uh, split into two books. And uh, so now we have the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but I'll sometimes call it one book, sometimes call it two. Um, In Old Testament times, it was unified, and it is the account of the return of the people of God from exile. For five centuries, the Israelites had been ruled by a succession of kings, but increasingly, they had given themselves to idolatry and to every form of wickedness. Out of his love, God sent them prophets to warn them but they would not listen to the prophets. And so in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar overran Judah. He sacked her capital. He blinded her king, Jedekiah, and he took both the king and his subjects off to Babylon. And though it was the Babylonian Empire that had taken king Jedekiah and his subjects into exile, there had been a number of major power shifts in the world empire since then. And it had gone from first uh, being the Babylonians, then they went through the Assyrians, and finally now it's Cyrus, who's king of the Persian Empire. And essentially, uh, these two books, or one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, are broken up into the story of three men. First, in Ezra 1-6, it's the story of Zerubbabel, who is set around 538 to rebuild the temple, and then it's the story of Ezra. Who, 60 years after Zerubbabel, 60 years after what we read here in chapter 1, he restores God's law to the life of the people. And then, third, the story of Nehemiah, who rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem between 458 and 420 BC. Now, there are three main themes of these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. First, that there is only one true God. Second, that this God, Jehovah, has made a covenant with his people. And third, that this God, Jehovah, has chosen to use means for the work that he does. Now, first, there's only one God, one true God. And this is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses who rescued Israel from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This is Israel's God. And he is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the ruler of all things. And without fail, he will order all things in such a way that the word of his prophets is fulfilled. He is not a localized deity. Now, let me repeat that. He is not a localized deity. Um, When we were on vacation, I spent most of my time in the hotel room or out on the balcony writing. This was my job given me by the elders. One night we went out to dinner and sat next to a very dignified couple in their mid to late 70s, very tall, very dignified. And as we were leaving our table, we got talking to them. And uh, we started to talk about the beauty of where we were. And the woman looked at me and said to me that, uh, it was it was a very beautiful place and that particularly she found the sea beautiful and that she particularly found the sea beautiful uh, because it reminded her of uh, of the beauty of womanhood. And so I looked at her and I said, that's interesting to see a woman. Why? Uh, Why did you choose a woman and not a man? Well, immediately she got defensive because, you know, you can't say anything about blacks and whites in America. And you can't say anything about men and women. You can use body parts to say anything, sell anything you want. But don't ever say anything about manhood or womanhood. You know, that's verboten. And so immediately she was on the defensive thinking I was picking a fight. Well, I wasn't. I wanted to know why she thought that the sea was a woman. And so she began to talk about how gentle it was. And I said, well, you mean like the perfect storm? So then her husband tried to help her out. And he said that, well, maybe it was that it was so fertile and nurturing and generous. And uh, like motherhood. And so I asked a few more questions and... uh, the woman looked at me and she said, you know, and the husband had indicated that, this, that she had grown up in a Catholic home and that she had spent 12 years in Catholic school, parochial school, and she said, well, you know something, she said, uh, I've never told anybody, any other human being this in my life, but all my life, I have wanted to pray to God as a mother. And the sea gives me permission to do this. That's a very private feeling that I've always had. And I thought you being a pastor might appreciate it. Well, you know that for her to say that to me is, I mean, of all the people that she could have found in Mexico to say that to, you know. So what started at that point was what Mary Lee would characterize as a very uncomfortable time. (laughs) Now, what's going on there? Well, what's going on is that we have gotten to a point in America where everybody believes that God is a function of the inclinations of their own heart. And that if they have an intuition if they have a feeling, if they have a a, a sneaking suspicion inside of them that God is a mother, that because it's genuine, because it's authentic, that it's true. And this is what the university teaches us today. It was fascinating as we proceeded in the discussion. um, I tried to get at the issue of objective truth and I tried to approach it from the issue of sexuality that God made man and woman, that there are realities biologically that come out of that. And I was trying to work my way into the issue that although it's not biologically present in front of us, that there are certain realities about God that are just as objectively true as the realities of our bodies and how God made us as men and women. In the course of that conversation, the man said that... Um, that actually he said there is no truth. There's no truth anywhere. There's no truth in science. There's no truth. And I I looked at him and I said, I hadn't told you this, but at the beginning of the conversation, he had indicated that he had spent 50 years writing programs. He was a computer programmer. He actually took a master's degree here at IU that he got, I think, back in 1953, which was the year I was born. Um, 50 years in programming I looked at him and I said you spent 50 years writing computer programs and you're telling me there's no truth? just the slightest error in your code and you will not continue until you find that error and correct it but that's not truth he said I said so when you get in a car and press on the pedal in a car do you believe that that brake pedal will stop you? Do you live your life based on that brake pedal stopping you? And he said, yes, but that's not truth. That's just what works. There is, quote, there is no truth in science, unquote. Now, it used to be the main competitor for truth and faith was science. But we're way beyond that today. Way beyond it. We don't live in a scientific, in an empirical, in a post-enlightenment world. Today we live in a world where uh, each man does that which feels right in his own eyes. To her, it's intuition. To him, it's what works. Do you understand that? That's their gods. She emotes, and he is practical. And that's all they need. You understand that? Now, what does that have to do with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Well, if if there's one scandalous truth in America today that Christians believe, it is that all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. Now, if you're biblical, you know I just quoted scripture. That's Isaiah. That's the theme all through scripture. Is that what Cyrus thought? Is that what Cyrus thought? All the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made heaven and earth. Is that what Cyrus thought? This this unbelievable uh, empire head like George Bush of America today. Is that what he thought? Well, look at the text. What does it actually say? The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Well, it sounds kind of universalist, doesn't it? This is the one God. All the nations have been given to him. So this must be the one God, right? But proceed, watch this. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Oh, all of a sudden it feels pretty good in Bloomington, doesn't it? May his God be with him. May his God be with him. We're making a little transition here, aren't we? Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, we're feeling really good, aren't we? You know, there's the God of the Palestinians. There's the God of the Arabs. There's the God of the Russian Orthodox. There's the God of the animists, There's the God of the Hindus. There's the God of the Buddhists. There's the God of the Shiites. There's the God of the Sunnis. There's the God of the mainline liberals. There's the God of just sort of the pagan sort of sociologist group. Okay, maybe. I mean, there are good sociologists, but you have to beat up on somebody, right? How many of you are sociology majors? Okay. There's one. Uh, It doesn't matter. You love me, right? Okay. Sociology. I always found them the crustiest, most predictably Marxist professors I ever had. So I always beat up on them. All these gods, pantheon of gods, take your pick. Take your pick. If you emote motherhood and the sea reminds you of a woman and you want to pray to God as a woman, that's your God. If you live on the basis of what works and you're a very pragmatic person, that's your God. If you're a cosmologist and uh, there's absolutely no reason that you see to posit anything. In fact, you think religion is responsible for most of the violence in the world. Religion, right? Well, yeah, if you call communism a religion, yes, most of the violence of the world, right? Is communism a religion? How about secularism in America today? Is it a religion? 1.3 million unborn children a year sacrificed on the altar of self-determination and secularism. Is it a religion? Is it taught in our public school? You see, everybody does have their God. Everybody has their God. Everybody worships. Everybody has an idol. And the question is, who your God is? Is that the question? No. Well, the question is, who is the true God? That's the question. And Cyrus really is not engaging in honoring God the Lord of the heavens and the earth. That's not what he's doing. What he's actually doing is engaging in a very sophisticated uh, international relations policy. That's what he's doing. Cyrus was an enlightened leader. He was very different from his predecessors. And if you go into the British Museum today, you'll find something called the Cyrus Cylinder. And on that cylinder, you'll find written what Cyrus actually believed. And here's what he wrote on that cylinder. He said, I return to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time. These sacred cities, okay? The sanctuaries has been in ruins for a long time. The images which used to live therein and establish for them permanent sanctuaries. These sacred cities, plural, the images which used to give a sanctity to these places, that used to give them permanent sanctuaries, I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities, okay, Ask daily, Bel and Babo, for a long life for me. To Marduk, my lord, may they say this, Cyrus the king who worships you, and Cambys, his son. In other words, he says, all you people that I sent back to your sacred cities, pray to my God, pray to Marduk, that I will have a long life. Now, why did Cyrus do this? Why does George Bush do what he does? Why did Cyrus set on this policy? It's very important that those of you who belong to Jesus Christ, and there are some here who have not yet believed in Jesus, but those of you who belong in Jesus, it's very, very important that you remember you are not an American. You are not a Republican. You are not a Democrat. You belong to God. Some trust in the Republican Party and some trust in the Democratic Party. But, Psalm 20 says, we will remember the name of the Lord. (laughs) If the election helps with justice and mercy and truth in our nation next year, it will be because why? Why? It will be because the Bible tells us that the king's heart is like putty in the hands of God. That the direction the king leads is all due to the hand of God directing him like it would direct a river of water. That the king's heart is a river of water that goes as God directs him. And if you look at the text, you'll see that this is exactly what it says about this mighty man Cyrus whose cylinder is in the British Museum, that what's written on that cylinder and what he did with the Jews is because of what it says here in the first year, verse 1, of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. (laughs) Putty in the hands of God. Think of all the great rulers of this world. The Bible tells us one day every knee will bow. George Bush, Ronald Reagan, Adolf Hitler, George Stalin, Mao Zedong, all of them. Mobutu, they'll all bow. And there will only be one Lord, only one. Now, does that have any application to your life? Well, yeah, it does, because you live in a university community. A university community is very sophisticated, very committed to the pantheon of God's. To nobody being right and wrong, you being given your intuition or your pragmatism. Whatever your God is, they'll give it to you. And when the Apostle Paul went into Athens in just such an environment and had to start from scratch, he began by saying, everything you see has been made by the only true God. Everything. In fact, you live and move and have your being from that God. Do you know what I failed to say to that couple that night? That, I failed. There's no question in that conversation uh, that I did not testify to Jesus Christ the way I should have. We have to get right at Jesus Christ. Now, I will also say that one of the best ways of getting at Jesus Christ is to approach it through a statement like she made about how she worships God as mother. Because right there you have the fatherhood of God. That God has revealed himself and has called us to pray to him, at our Father who art in heaven. You know, we don't you know, move away from the things that the Bible contradicts. When the Apostle Paul stood up in Athens and he preached, he went and nailed the very issue at the center of that city, namely that you can have all the gods you want, including an unknown God, and he came focused on the unknown God and then said that's the only God that exists. All the other things are idols. In the past, God's overlooked your ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent because he has set a time when he will judge all men. That's not an inclusive message. And so when we look at this statement at the very beginning, that it says that Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. So what does it say? In order to fulfill the word of the Lord, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he sent a proclamation. Look, you cannot have the... Um, you know, you can't have the can't-we-all-get-along, you know, kind of loosey-goosey, you know. It's interesting. At the, at the end of the conversation, he looked at me, this elderly man, and he said, Why does truth have to be exclusive? Why can't everybody be right? And what's the answer? Well, the answer is what Paul said at the end of the sermon to the Athenians, where he said, in the past God has overlooked such ignorance. The Athenians, ignorance. But now he has commanded that all people everywhere repent, for he has set a day when he will judge all men. That's evangelistic preaching. And so here we have Cyrus... He thinks that he's the head of the empire and that he has a good foreign policy and he records it in something that we still have in the British Museum. And it's very clear that Cyrus looks at all of this as just being an indication of this God for this city and this location and this God for the city and this location. And now that all these people have been given back to their locations and their gods, they'll like him better and then they will pray to his God that he will be given a longer life. And can't we all get along? And what is God doing? God is assembling a people. It's not everybody. You know, it's very interesting. When I say it's not everybody, and I said to you, well, you know, most of the Persians didn't go with them. It was the people of God that went, you'd agree. And then if I said to you Cyrus didn't get to go, you'd agree. You might want to think that Cyrus would get some blessing from God for being part of the freedom of the Jews to return, to restore their worship, to rebuild their temple, to have all their vessels of worship given back to them. In fact, for him even to tell the people of his empire that they were to give free will offerings to the Jews as they went back, What does that remind you of? Well, it reminds us of the Israelites leaving Egypt, right? When they left Egypt, the Egyptians poured their wealth on top of them. Isn't that interesting? Do you think that elders should take a gift if a man wins a lottery? I hate gambling. I hate it. I think it's disgusting. That's just a personal feeling. Um... And so occasionally I sit and think, well, what if somebody in our church won $300 million? What, what do I think we should do? I don't know. But isn't it interesting that uh, the wealth of Persia was poured out on the people of God for them to rebuild the temple? Isn't that interesting? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything belongs to Him. And He provides And he doesn't mind having a little irony and humor in the way he provides. I want to point out something else. Look at chapter 2, would you please? And if you were reading through the Bible in a year, or two years, or four, depending on your level of discipline, and you got to chapter 2, would you enjoy it? Every one of those chapters that we kind of want to skip over, I don't get a kick out of reading lists of names, especially when I don't know how to pronounce them. Why do you think that list is there? You know what that list is? That's the honor rule from the Persian Empire. That's the honor rule of the charter members of the New Temple Society. Those are the first members of the new temple. Wouldn't it be great to have your mother and your father be listed as those who went back to Jerusalem? Think of the pride you'd take in that list, being in Scripture for all future generations to read. Wouldn't it be incredible to have your name on that list? Now let me ask you another question. What if your name wasn't on that list? Yikes, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I kind of like Persia. <laughs> I kind of like the flesh pots. You know. Do you remember what happened when the Israelites went into the wilderness? God finally rescues them from their slavery, right? And every slave wants to be rescued, right? What happened when God used Moses to bust the Israelites loose from their bondage? Well, here's what we read. They said they've just, just been allowed to leave Egypt. And then Pharaoh draws near, Exodus 14:10. The sons of Israel look, and behold, the Egyptians are marching after them. They become very frightened. And then it says, So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses... Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Exodus 16:2. the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Numbers fourteen one. right after they'd received the spies' report of how there were giants in the Promised Land, then all the congregation, we read, lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness! Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Now, let me ask be honest. You're safe here. This is one place you don't have to lie. Okay? Is that you? Is that you? The truth is, we do love our flesh pots and our bondage. Sin is attractive. Idols seduce. Idolatry is seductive. And so when you look at that second chapter and you see those names listed there, I want you to recognize something, and that is there are many, many, many names that are not listed there. What's the point of having a list unless it excludes some people? You don't list names simply to say yes. You also list them to say no. I remember when I got done with seminary, I had to take a a battery of two or three days tests for ordination in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I think at that point the pass rate was something like 50% of all the tests, so that meant what? That meant 50% of us didn't pass. And so after a couple of weeks, they have been graded, everything's put up on the board, and this means that you will either proceed to pastor a church or you will not proceed. You will not pass go. You will not collect $200, right? So my my friend Gary and I run downstairs to the faculty hallway where the results are going to be posted outside the advisor's door that did that denomination. And we look up on the board and it's by social security number. And so... Um, You know, our hearts are pounding. We look up on the board. We find our social security number, and all that's said is pass or fail. So I look up, and I see I passed. What's the immediate thought you have? And so I cast this sort of sneaky glance to my left to see if he passed, because I don't want to be squealing and happy if my best friend has failed. But he's happy, and so we let loose. Well, what we didn't realize is that somebody else had come up in between us while we were looking. So we both squeal exactly at the same time as we look at this other person and realize they failed. That's what let's do. And there are a whole bunch of people that are not listed in chapter 2. Do you understand that? And the reason we know that is that when we go to Exodus in Numbers, we see the Israelites complaining constantly that God rescued them from their slavery. (laughs) Now, come on, people, be honest with me. This is you. Let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. You want to return to the flesh pots that God has rescued you from. Or you haven't given them up. You see Jesus Christ in all His glory on the cross, pouring His blood out, the perfect Lamb of God. The perfect Lamb of God. You see Him there as an expression of His Father's love for the world. And over here you see naked women and 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 booze and drugs and embezzlement and and cheating on your income taxes and jealousy of your best friend's children and their success all the stuff that 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 we just cling to in life. And here is the lamb of God whose blood was shed. And here is all the flesh pots of Egypt. All the Persian G jaws, you know everything that that empire had. Here we have the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Who says to all men, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." And over here we have DVDs at Blockbusters, and and you know. Uh <clears throat> a Ph.D. (laughs) And you say, bug off, Tim. I say, okay, fine. With you, a Ph.D. is godliness. I'm just talking to the people who it's not. I know the Ph.D. has been godliness for some men and women in our church. No question about it. But isn't it the nature of sexuality that it's both beautiful and unbelievably destructive, depending on whether it's a servant or an idol? Is that true of Ph.D.s? Some of you, they're idols. You say, are you talking to me? I say, no, but the Holy Spirit might be. So, okay, over here is sex and educational degrees and wealth. How about your wealth? Is your wealth your servant or is it your master? Here you have Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. He's beautiful. And he says, come to me. And over here you have your pension fund. Am I saying pension funds are bad? No. Pension funds can be excellent servants. They're terrible masters. Here you have money. Are you saying all money is bad? No, no. But the love of money is the root of all evil. That's what the Bible says. And so we go back and forth, back and forth. And you look at the um, Israelites and they want to go back to Egypt. And you look at this list of names and you see there are many names that aren't there. Now, why aren't they there? Okay? Watch this. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 5. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Their hearts were stirred. The reason the names are listed there is that they had a desire to go back that's why and so remember what i said here you have the lamb of god and here you have the flesh pots of america which has your heart which has your heart which do you love And so here we have a list of people who God honors by showing that their hearts were right. Now I'm snookering you. I'm snookering you. Teasing. Misleading. Is that what that list shows? (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. Look at it again. What does it actually say? Then the heads of fathers, households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites rose, even everyone who had a right heart before God. Is that what it says? No, it says everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord. One of the things that's so hard for people who don't come to Christ in faith is they look at the self-righteousness or sometimes what they perceive as the self-righteousness of Christians and they say I can't stand their pride their arrogance Uh, they think they're better than everybody and I'm not going to worship a God like that well the truth is that every single person here who looks to the Lamb of God and comes as Jesus commands only does it because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts If the king of Persia and if the president of the United States' hearts are putty in the hands of God, then every single person listed in chapter 2 did what they did only because of the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts. Now, what's the application of this to you? The application is that ever since the fall of the Garden of Eden we have been in bondage to evil. While we were in our mother's womb from the moment of conception King David said in sin did my mother conceive me. And the Bible always speaks of us who when we're not in Christ as being slaves of Satan. Think of all the talk in America of freedom choice. There is not. There are simply those who are slaves of Jesus Christ and those who are slaves of Satan. We wish that the delineation, the separation, the division were much more sophisticated and had infinite levels of gray. But here we have those who the Holy Spirit has caused to look to Jesus and to say, I come. And here we have those who God has not busted loose from their bondage to the flesh pots. And this is always the theme of Scripture. It feels okay for me to preach it when it comes to Cyrus and when it comes to... Remember Caesar Augustus? In the days of Caesar Augustus, Roman Empire, the emperor, in the days of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree from him that all the world should be taxed. And Joseph and his espoused wife Mary... In other words, the whole reason that Caesar Augustus declared that the whole world would be taxed is so that Joseph and Mary would go to Bethlehem because that's where the prophets said that the Messiah would be born. You see, Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar Augustus, President George Bush, all of them do what God leads them to do. That's okay for me to say that as long as I give you your free will. And I tell you that the choice is in front of you. And everything hinges on that choice. And so, choose Jesus Christ. Well, I do say that. But I don't say choose. I I command you to choose Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to believe in Him. And then I tell you, that if you find yourself hankering after and casting a long, longing eye after the flesh pots of the United States of America, run to Jesus. And if you find yourself unable to run to Jesus, pray that the Holy Spirit will turn your heart. Everything is of God. Everything is of God. People that returned to rebuild the temple did it because the Holy Spirit turned their hearts and made them willing and desirous of going back. And now their names are listed. Think of the Lamb's Book of Life. It's the book that's in heaven of those who belong to Jesus. There are real names there. When you enter the judgment seat of God, it will be examined to see if your name is there. What's the point of a list? The point of a list is the names that aren't there. You want your name listed in chapter 2, the name of your Father? You want your name listed in the Lamb's Book of Life? It will happen because the Holy Spirit gives you faith. The Holy Spirit turns your heart like He turned the heart of Cyrus and the heart of Caesar Augustus. And so you pray and you say, Holy Spirit, give me the gift of faith. Holy Spirit, incline my heart away from Persia and away from Egypt and incline my heart to the Lamb of God. And then look to the Lamb. Look to his righteousness, his holiness. Look to his love. Hear him when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you want rest? Learn of me, he says, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Is the yoke of internet pornography easy? Is the burden of looking at naked women that you're not married to light? Pouring over your pension fund, picturing yourself with an IU hood, getting the terminal degree. Is that a light burden for you? Let us pray. Father.